Geico presents, oh, uh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> The GEICO Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit GEICO.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Corey. I'm Jen. I'm Ginny. And we are the Art History Babes. Ah, so what's everyone been up to? I mean, I feel like this is a momentous occasion. We're back in our Alma Mater. Alma Town. Alma Town. (laughs) Alma Town. (laughs) It's the Alma Town. Yeah. Davis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hi, Davis. I know. It's been a while. It's been Been a while. while. Mm. (laughs) Took the song out of my mouth. (laughs) Stained. (laughs) But yeah, it's it's nice to be back here. I hear the sound of the train in the distance, mm-hmm. and uh, it's like, oh yes, yeah, oh. that sound of that train made it really difficult for me to sleep today. <laughs> yeah, so just a little bit of a background for our listeners: I still live in Davis um, because I am painfully rooted in many ways to this <laughs> town, and so I live in this really interesting little place that's literally feet away from the train tracks, mm-hmm. and it shakes my whole place, but I love it. I can't sleep without the Union Pacific coming by and wow. shaking my whole house. Interesting. So when I it's move gonna be from an adjustment here, for you whenever I, you yeah, move. Yeah. I need to go move right next to like a freeway, Okay. because I just don't think I'll be able to sleep. Yeah, See, I don't think that's that weird. I've heard that from a lot of people that live in like cities or live totally, in noisy like the places. white noise you know it becomes white noise rather right yeah exactly for but Corey earlier it was not white noise it was noise noise well i live in the quietest tiniest suburb right now it's quiet all the time yeah. it's the boondocks and i also work in the middle of the night so i after i got off work this morning at six thirty a.m I came here <laughs> to sleep because they're doing some inspections or something at my place. Oh. So I came here to try and get some sleep, which I did, but I am n- unfortunately not used to the sound of the train tracks. Right. So Just a little so, sleepy, yeah. but that's okay. Got my Thai iced tea. That it's the best. Mm-hmm. I have some cold brew coffee that I should not be drinking, but I cannot help myself. Wow. I love that stuff. It's good. It is very good. Well, that's a little peek into our current lives. It's very exciting stuff. We're just doing so yeah. much cool stuff. <laughs> all you know, the we're time. just traveling a lot between the Davis, Sacramento area, the Bay Area, and the Bay Area. We've got the we've seen the many sights of the drive. We've got the stretch from Sacramento, well, really outside Sacramento, yeah. all the way through the Bay covered. Yeah, we're just like all moving. the time all, all the time the place, Constant. all the time yeah almost every weekend is yeah. like i'm going to drive for an hour in one direction yeah, right? and that's fine you know what that's what's really cool about living in northern california i think is that y- everything is relatively close by that you want to see yeah everything that's above us i don't care about 
as far as California goes. I love northern, northern California. Well, it's beautiful. You're right. Like, Mendocino is amazing. Yeah. Tahoe. Fort Bragg. Well, no, Tahoe's to the it's, east of us. Yeah. But it's, like, kind of north. It's east north. East north. <laughs> Northeast. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, up there where it gets. Fort Bragg is lovely. Fort Bragg is lovely. Glass Beach. I heard about yeah. Glass Beach, Dope. and I, I do want to go. All right, you know what? I, res- kind of I rescind what I said. <laughs> that was that was unfair of me to our north north california listeners to, I, I i apologize to be honest california is an insanely large state enormous it is absolutely enormous some of my friends that have thought about coming out to visit and stuff they don't really understand how big california yeah. is until they try and map out like all the stuff they want to see yeah and i'm like no like if you're flying into la it's gonna take you like nine hours to yeah. get to me <laughs> you're not in new hampshire anymore yeah right but we do live in a cool area that there is a lot around and we're also super lucky because even though the traffic is a nightmare we mm-hmm. have the train ah yes which a lot of people in the united states don't benefit from train systems like that like we yeah. take the train from sacramento to the bay mm-hmm. very easily and it's cozy and mm-hmm. enjoyable you can drink on the train yeah that's cool that's a cool thing although the east coast has this beat as far as the well, trains go, yeah. but the you know. East Coast is—they've had more time. Exactly. It's true. Yeah, we're still <laughs> pioneers out here. So. Yeah, but literally everywhere else except for the Upper East Coast don't have train systems yeah. like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, they don't need it. Yeah. yeah, they don't have the hourly trains, right. you know, going places. Right, stuff. right, right. Damn, I love living in California. And I can't afford it, but none of us can. <laughs> I'm staying, okay? Yeah. It's a great state. Yeah. Come out and visit us. We'll show you a good time. Come out and see us sometime. <laughs> Today, we are talking about a, a good friend of the artistry <laughs> base. good, good friend. Marcel <laughs> Duchamp. Ah. Duchamp. I, Duchamp. <laughs> see, you two took a seminar in our first year of grad school that was entirely on Duchamp. It was amazing. Yeah. It was our first quarter in yeah. grad school. So right out the gate. A whole Duchampian extravaganza. It was yeah. amazing. It was actually, I mean, definitely one of the most memorable seminars I've ever taken. And it was when Corey and I, pretty much the first time that we met one of the advisors on our theses, because for Corey and I, we had basically the same committee and um, which was fine (laughs) it was great because we got to have our meetings together which really made things maybe a little bit more simple for our professors a little bit more complicated for us (laughs) but whatever and that's when we met our lovely professor professor housefield if you're out there we loved (laughs) your seminar it was a great seminar and Professor Housefield has actually written a book on Duchamp. It is called Playing with Earth and Sky, Astronomy, Geography, and the Art of Marcel Duchamp. So this is the baby of our professor, our dear professor, <laughs> James Housefield. Look it up. It's super, super interesting. Marcel Duchamp, among other things, was interested in physics and astronomy and geography and everything and we're gonna get into that but take a look at this book take a look it's in a book (laughs) (laughs) reading house Uh, (laughs) Uh, 
Oh, man. So this seminar was really fun. And we kind of, I mean, I had heard of Marcel Duchamp before, but I don't think I ever really appreciated him as an individual. I just always sort of lumped him in with Dada and Cubism. We'd all sort of heard of Nude Descending a Staircase, number two, very famous work. Even if you're not familiar with what it looks like, most people that are familiar with art recognize the title Mm -hmm. new descending a staircase so what we did learn in the seminar was that it's not douche champ (laughs) so when i was in that seminar i was talking to a friend of mine about it and i was like yeah i I wrote this paper on duchamp and he started calling him duchamp (laughs) duchamp i was like yeah that's good i like it the first day of our seminar our professor made us pronounce this name many times (laughs) and he said think of it as the bray of a donkey Mm -hmm. and then he started going douchamp and it just went on for so long for a very long time until we were like all doing it he was really waiting <laughs> he was for like all you have us. to do it and, and we so were like oh, i would love to have seen the faces of people walking in the hallway hearing i wish i had been this, one of those yeah hearing this whole class being just very loud screaming douchamp oh my goodness so duchamp full name henri robert marcel duchamp mm. That's a good name. It's a good name. Full. It's a full name. It's a full name. It's a good, strong name. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so let's get into a little bit of the nitty gritty on this man. So just some basics for you. Born July twenty eighth, eighteen eighty seven. He was the fourth of seven children. Marcel, his two older brothers, and his younger sister all became artists. His grandfather, Emile Frederic Nicole, was a bit of a hotshot artist. He was kind of a big deal. In 1904, Duchamp joins his brothers in Paris, who were already practicing artists there. His brother, Gaston Duchamp, which is a great name. Oh, man. I don't man. know why he changed it. Beauty and it. the Beast. Yeah, right? Gaston. <laughs> right? I've never... I- no one paints like Gaston. <laughs> <laughs> I I can't think of another Gaston. Like, that's a legit name. Gas for short. <laughs> Gasty? Old, old Gassy. <laughs> I'm a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> but Gaston Duchamp changed his name to Jacques Vion. Oh. Yeah. That's kind of nice, too. It is nice, but I, I thought... That's not Gaston. <laughs> and Raymond Duchamp added the Vion onto his name so mm-hmm. he became Raymond Duchamp Vion mm-hmm. and they were both dominant figures in the pre-war cubist group mm-hmm. they were in Paris doing that whole cubist thing Duchamp's family belonged to a class of what has been termed provincial notables oh right that were characterized as prudent honest logical down to earth concerned with efficiency resourceful and had a controlled and sly sense of humor. Mm. Oh. Yeah, so very wow. kind of logical, grounded people. Yes. <laughs> he grew up Catholic, which shines through in some of his work. Truly. He, he plays with that later on. In his early years, he was very interested in comics and cartoons, and he had a love of wordplay that is incorporated into his work for the duration of his career. I mean, it's really fun because... 
he was multilingual so he plays with words in lots of different languages yeah. in in a way you have to be really smart to decipher oh boy <laughs> yeah he was a smart man that that rascal <laughs> he was a rascal yeah he was a very important voice in the Dada movement, which is a widely diverse art movement. But if you're unfamiliar, it was kind of all about asking questions and making fun of society in some ways. It was right. Highly, highly, highly conceptual. As we talked about when we did our episode on a piece of work and mm-hmm. they look at mm-hmm. Hisham's bicycle wheel, mm-hmm. I think Hannibal Burris nails it when he says like <laughs> he was kind of trolling. Dada artists were kind of trolling society. They oh, were. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Even the name Dada was fallen upon because of its simplistic, almost baby right. words. Like, like Dada. Dada. And that was entirely done in order to sort of deflate this idea of the high society academic art world. Right. And so this is like the extreme opposite. I think it would be fun to talk about Dada in a oh, yes. full episode. Oh, we definitely will. We should That's definitely That's do that. That's a necessary one. Oh, it's like really fun to talk about. But anyway. So Duchamp coined the term ready-mades, which is a art term you may be familiar with or you may have heard and not really known what it means. But in the art world, a ready-made is a work of art made from a manufactured object. And I think it's important to note a mostly unaltered manufactured mm-hmm. object. Yes. It's ready-made. So you can't just take a manufactured object and then turn it into something completely new and crazy. Then it's not really a ready-made anymore. But he was the first to really do this and he caused a lot of uproar because of it. Right. Some of his infamous works that were ready-mades include In Advance of a Broken Arm in 1915, which I love that title. It's such a good title. (laughs) It is a good title. And it's basically just a snow shovel hanging from the ceiling. It's a snow shovel. He didn't like handcraft it. He bought it. He argued that the artistry was behind the choosing of the object. Mm -hmm. So he chose the object. That was the artistry, not the actual crafting of it, which was a super revolutionary idea. Incredibly And a lot of people didn't buy it. (laughs) I think a lot of people still don't buy it. Oh, Uh, absolutely. Yeah, I remember being at the MoMA two years ago, and there are a decent amount of Duchamp ready-mades at the New York MoMA, and... There were just people in the room that were mad. They were like, the, for real? This is literally yeah. a wheel. It's a, it's a bicycle wheel. I just, it I, makes a lot of people mad. I yeah. I'm angry. I, okay, so I appreciate emotional reactions to anything. Certainly. I'm a yeah. very emotional person. I That's how I approach the world. So I can appreciate, I appreciate emotional reactions, even if they're angry, because it does mean you give a shit, you know, like you're feeling something, so you care. However, I feel like that's so common with art is just to jump to anger. And I wish people would be like, okay, I'm angry. Yeah. Maybe I should stop and think about it for just like a second. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Because a lot of times once people learn more about it, they still might not dig it, but the anger kind of right. like right, right, right. down a little bit. I think that a lot of that initial anger is really because it's a blow to your ego. When you are confronted with something and you feel like you're being duped or someone's telling you, oh, you just don't get it. Mm -hmm. 
that makes people feel insecure right, and yeah. react angrily because it's hurting your ego because you're going, uh, this isn't a museum and I'm not getting it. Yeah. yeah. This is making totally. me mad. I feel like I'm being tricked right yes. now. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's what a is big bullshit. That's a big part of the way that people react to a lot of modern and contemporary art. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. totally. no, I, I think you, yeah, you definitely nailed it. People don't like feeling dumb, I guess. And the thing is, if you don't get it, that doesn't make you dumb. None of us got it at first either. You know, I, I did not. I yeah. think it's very rare that someone encounters their first Duchampian work and they're like, oh, I know exactly what this is about. That doesn't happen very often no yeah basically i think what i'm trying to say is when you approach an artwork that makes you feel uncomfortable just remind yourself you're not alone it took everyone time to right. like work through these things and right. to figure it out and um yeah and that's kind of part of the fun hey that's <laughs> a lot of the point i'm just gonna just come out and put myself on the spot there are still some times <laughs> where i am looking i'm looking at a ready-made by duchamp right now i'm looking at fountain which we will discuss here in a second Mm -hmm. fountain was the first work by duchamp that i ever encountered and i just remember thinking what a joker (laughs) like i just what a smoker yeah what a midnight toker (laughs) dude tell me about that (laughs) because honestly that's why marcel duchamp was a rascal okay yes this is a huge joke and I still think of it that way. I think that a lot of the lofty sort of explanations behind some of this stuff is a bit much. Yeah. But I mean, I still like it and I mm-hmm. still take it and appreciate it for what it is and that someone had these thoughts. But at the same time, I'm like, this is a joke. And he thought it was a joke, too. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think the thing with Duchamp is he was very very smart and so it his work is worth picking apart in these crazy specific ways because he was very intentional about his work and he did hide things in a lot of his work and so it's worth analyzing like that but he also had a very sly sense of humor and so you you have to recognize that there is some element of his work that is a joke yeah but like that's part of it that's like part of the whole thing that being said, I don't, I don't think that's all he was doing. I think it was kind of a, definitely a not mix of things. I think this is kind of putting me on the spot because, in a sense, I was being trolled most likely. The first time I think I saw Fountain, like my instinct was to like appreciate the aesthetics of this urinal like turned upside down right the smoothness i went straight for appreciating aesthetics which i guess isn't necessarily a bad thing because well appreciating aesthetics of any object is a good thing well let's talk about fountain because i think that a lot of our listeners want to know what we think about this work because it's literally a urinal yeah Mm -hmm. okay (laughs) that is what it is (laughs) you walk into the gallery and you see this white urinal and it's turned to its side, and it is very nice. It's a nice urinal. Oh, it's pristine. It's pristine. It really it's is. a well-made object, and <laughs> it is also inscribed on the edge with the pseudonym R. Mutt. So Duchamp signed it R. Mutt, R. Mutt. and gave it the name Fountain. So this was a work that he submitted to 
in an exhibit on Fifth Avenue. And his patron, Walter Ahrensberg, he was a, also a collector, was with him and said, okay, <laughs> uh, I guess I will buy this standard white porcelain urinal. And I guess we're going to put it in this show. He did not put his name in the show. They didn't know right. who Armut was. The original has since disappeared. So there's um there's 17 copies. Does the SF MoMA still have fountain? One of the fountains? I think they do. I haven't been in a, in a little bit. So I'm not sure. I saw they have a gold one. They do. Yeah. yeah. Yes. They Who do. the gold one? That was um, was a female artist. Yes, yes. They have a couple fountains. One is a gold one by a female artist whose name I cannot remember. But I know. I feel like we talked about it I, I feel like on we the podcast before. I'll look into that. And we can do like a little side note for sources on this or something. But they definitely have some fountains. Yeah. And that's something to note, too, is that fountain resulted in a lot of work replicas. based on fountains. Yes. Yes. Lots of replicas, mm-hmm. lots of people mm-hmm. taking the idea and then kind of adding onto it. Right. There's so many works totally. that came from fountains. Yeah, and I think it's important to keep in mind that Duchamp submitted fountain in an exhibition by a group of artists in New York City called Society of Independent Artists. So this was 1917. Mm-hmm. And this society had very strict rules, and one of the rules explicitly stated that all works that were submitted would be exhibited. So what a perfect set of circumstances for Duchamp to say, all right, I'm going (laughs) to submit this urinal. I'm going to make you regret that decision. Exactly. (laughs) And so obviously they broke the rules because it was only on display for a short while and the organizing committee was just outraged and Mm -hmm. they rejected it and removed it. So I think that the notoriety, though, just completely gave him this sort of up in the New York art scene. Totally. We started with the ready-mades, but why don't we talk a little bit about what Duchamp was up to before he headed to New York? Because as we mentioned earlier, he had a background in Cubism. Mm -hmm. Yes. His brothers and himself were interested in Cubism. So Cubism in a turn of the century... France, specifically these sort of rural areas that they moved to. There were these small artist communities Mm -hmm. that these folk would migrate to and sort of just have a lot of philosophical conversations. And so if you listen to our Cubist episode, we have discussed how many of these artists were interested in the fourth dimension. The fourth dimension. trying to really isolate something that is we can't perceive it visually but attempting to nevertheless represent it in these works and so because of this sort of obsession with the fourth dimension a lot of Duchamp's Cubist works are a little bit different than other work by Cubists because you're still somewhat seeing like representational figures in a lot of his work. One of the ones that I really enjoy is, and it's not quite Cubist, but it, it was made 
around this time was and by saying it's not quite keybist it's just there's some kind of rejection to call it a purely cubist work we're talking right now about new descending a staircase number two Mm -hmm. so cubist yes i consider it cubist but i've read a lot of arguments against and so what's really being represented is this active movement Mm -hmm. so it was in these transient moments of movement that duchamp really found his niche within the cubist circle and specifically Mm -hmm. trying to isolate this idea of the fourth dimension and so he would make a number of works that were in this sort of same vein of trying to capture transitional liminal spaces Mm -hmm. so we love that word what did (laughs) duchamp refer to Uh, he had a word for liminal spaces do you remember the infrathin Oh, yeah. Yes. We used that word a lot. We did use that word a lot. In the seminar. The theory of the infrathin, it was described by Duchamp as the possible, implying the becoming. The passage from one to the other takes place in the infrathin. So essentially liminal space. A liminal space, right. The notion of becoming and not quite capturing what was before or what's after. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, where a little bit of his Catholic background comes in, especially his work, Passage from Virgin to Bride. So this work was a follow-up to 1912. He created a work called Just Bride. And in this second work, it was also painted in 1912. Passage from Virgin to Bride is capturing this moment supposedly in which the virgin is deflowered. And so this like very sort of taboo, scandalous moment that is never actually represented. Mm -hmm. So when we think about marriage, (laughs) we all know the white dress, she's Uh, pure. And then, you know, you you (laughs) consummate the marriage, but you don't see it. And then now she's a bride. So that work is not so much cubist as it becomes almost a mechanical diagram. Uh, We'll post pictures, but when you see this work, it looks kind of like a machine. It looks sort of like an engine a little bit. It's got these components that look almost like gears. And then it almost has an anatomy. There's a great word that one of the sources for this paper that I wrote in the seminar uses. And they call her a female mechanomorph. (laughs) Very cool. It's a creature made of shapes based on mechanical forms. Mechanomorph. And so all of this culminates in one of his most famous works, The Bride Stripped Bare by Her Bachelors Even, otherwise known as The Large Glass. Mm-hmm. 1915 was when Marcel Duchamp began to work on The Large Glass, and it was relatively sort of put together by a series of works that he had already made. So it was not only The Bride from 1912 the painting but also a work from 1914 called chocolate grinder number two and then another work from 1915 called the nine malik molds so these 
works by Duchamp can almost be thought of as schematics for this machine that was ultimately going to be the large glass. There's two parts to the large glass. There's a top and the bottom. And at the bottom is something that he referred to as the bachelor apparatus. And it just looks like a bunch of weird sort of like a machine. So he's thinking of this male domain as the machine with this idea that this machine is attempting to break into what is the bride's domain, which is above. And if you see the top part of this work, the bride's domain is sort of this more cerebral, floaty space. There's sort of like a cloud with three squares in it. So this is supposed to be the more elevated space. And this bachelor apparatus is attempting to break into this top part. And there's this machine that's supposed to be trying to get in there. And it's called the bachelor's boxing match mechanism. So I'm not going to go totally crazy trying to describe this work to you because it is insane. And he talked about it for so, so, so long after he had already finished it. Essentially, what you're seeing here, though, is this moving away from the two-dimensional canvas. Mm -hmm. So a lot of his works are very complex. There's no way we can cover them all here. And that one, I think, is a big one. There's so many elements of it, and there's been so much written on it as well, Mm -hmm. so you can look more into that. What year did he do that? 1915? He started it in 1915 and he stopped working on it in 1923, but he never really considered it to be done. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'm going to jump back in time a little bit to 1913, but first I think we should take a quick break. 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 As podcasters, we understand the importance of quality sound. Studio headphones are stylish and sleek with proper sound quality. If you like on-ear headphones, you know the ones that make you look like a DJ, you'll love the Regent. With 24 plus hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby life, the Regent is the perfect companion to you at home or on the go. If you're looking for headphones to meet your more athletic lifestyle, check out the Tray with 9 plus hours of active battery life and 10 days of standby life. It's made out of sweat-proof material and has custom wing tips that stay comfortably in your ear no matter how you're moving. These are only two of the many styles that Studio has to offer, so go to studio.com to check them out. Studio emphasizes the modern Scandinavian design while also providing a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. And they provide free worldwide shipping. Use the discount code BABES to get 15% off any purchase. Go check them out. They're beautiful. As we watch the suburban garden gnome carefully, carefully without disturbing it, we notice that it moves like not at all. It's inanimate and utterly without brain function. But... 
despite that, when a garden gnome hears about how Geico not only saves people money, but also gives them access to licensed agents 24-7 online and over the phone, it's clear to them you should switch. Because yes, switching to Geico is a no-brainer. But on second thoughts, maybe don't watch garden gnomes too carefully. People might talk. All right, we're back. And we're going to talk about a fun thing called chance aesthetics. which is what I wrote my paper on for the Duchamp seminar that we took. It's just an idea that grabbed me. I really, I I really liked the whole idea and Duchamp played with what are considered chance aesthetics in a lot of his work. So the idea of chance aesthetics is a work of art happens mostly by chance that Mm -hmm. it's actually the chance that creates the aesthetic aspect and not the artist themselves. The artist just kind of, controls the atmosphere but the chance creates the aesthetic gotcha um which is kind of contradictory by nature (laughs) because aesthetics it depends on your view of aesthetics but as an artist some people define artists as someone who creates something aesthetically pleasing right so if an artist is giving their aesthetic agency to chance forces Mm -hmm. like are they still an artist i don't know something to think about so it's a complicated idea and there as you can imagine there are a lot of people that have a lot of thoughts on chance aesthetics and since duchamp there have been a lot of artists that work with chance aesthetics just throughout modern art and contemporary art his most notable work where he employed chance aesthetics was entitled three standard stoppages in 1913 with three standard stoppages, Duchamp brought the role that Chance plays in the production of an artwork to the front of things. So once again, he's just messing with people's minds. Right. He's like trying to mix things up. He's being a little rascal. And so he wanted to bring this role that Chance plays in an artwork to the forefront and then use that as a platform to discuss how natural factors dictate reality, mm-hmm. essentially, both art and reality. Mm-hmm. So in Three Standard Stoppages, Duchamp has said this is the ready-made he loved most. Oh, yeah, didn't know that. Which is interesting because I think this is much different than Fountain or the Broken Arm one. Can you explain really quick how it's a ready-made? Because I didn't know he considered this one a ready-made. I think he considers it a a ready-made because he didn't actually construct anything. Well, I mean, he constructed things after the fact, but the actual artwork... Okay, so the actual artwork, what he did was he took three meter long pieces of string Mm -hmm. and he dropped them and then whatever configuration they resulted in, that was the aesthetic. Mm -hmm. So I think the ready-made aspect is probably just the fact that it's just string, you know, Mm -hmm. he just took a piece of string and, but I agree, it's very different from his other Mm ready-made, Yeah, but he considered it one, in fact, the one he loved most, so... Maybe that was a troll. Maybe he was he was playing with yeah. us there. Yeah. I, you yeah. can't trust anything this guy says. <laughs> God damn it. Duchamp, we just want to know. We just want to know. But okay, so he took three meter long string. He dropped them and then they each landed in a certain configuration. And then what he did was he cut out pieces of wood that represented that resulting configuration. And the idea was that he was trying to redefine the meter. He was trying to redefine oh. what a meter was. Because if you have one meter of string and you drop it, 
and it's in a different shape, it's still one meter of string. Mm -hmm. But then you cut it out in wood and it's not necessarily technically a meter, but is it though? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that like hurt my head I, a little I bit. That's why I love this work so much. He really wants you to think about reality and mm -hmm. about the way we define things yeah. and the way we make sense of our reality. So chance aesthetics and the work really changes depending on how it's displayed. It's been displayed in, in so many ways. So the image will have up, there's this box, and then there's two of the meter sticks, quote unquote, that have been cut out that are in the box. And then above the box, there is a black piece of cardboard with one of the strings adhered mm, to it. Yeah. And then the resulting meter stick above it. And I picked this one because I think it's an aesthetically pleasing way to show the work. Mm -hmm. But the work has been shown in many, many, many yeah. different ways. A lot of times the box isn't even there. And it changes the whole aesthetic of what you're looking at depending on how it is shown. As Duchamp stated during an interview, my first accidental experience that we commonly call chance happened with the three stoppages and, as I said before, was a great experience. The idea of letting a piece of thread fall on a canvas was accidental, but from this accident came a carefully planned work. So in other words, Duchamp involved himself in this contradictory relationship mm -hmm. between aesthetics and chance. So he prefigured a chance experiment. Right. So you have to determine how much you think he yeah. was in control or not. Because you can't say he wasn't in any control, but you also can't say. Right. This also relates to the concept of the infrathin we were just talking about. To Duchamp, the creative act in these experiments exists in the infrathin. In that moment of mm -hmm. falling that he has no control over. Right. So in that moment, that is the infrathin, that is the liminal space, and mm -hmm. that's where the creativity happens. Mm -hmm. I love that. I do too. Additionally, it is an interesting work because there's some fun things with wordplay going on here. Indeed. So the word chance itself is derived from the Latin word cadere, C-A-D-E-R-E, which means to fall. Mm -hmm. So just the falling of the strings yeah. was chance. So there's Whoa. an interesting... Do you think he knew that? Oh, yeah. I guarantee you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Duh. <laughs> yeah. And also the phrase bon chance is French for good luck. Aww. And chance yep. equates to yeah. luck. There is mm -hmm. inherently an aspect of luck in chance aesthetics. Yes. So this is a multi-layered work. I like the experimental nature of this mm -hmm. work. I like that there's totally. a process to it and that he's actually creating almost like a science experiment in a weird way. Yeah. There's like some theoretical physics going on here, you know, which is fun. So, so yeah, this is probably one of my favorite works by him. In my paper, what I did was talked about it in relation to a work that was created recently as an homage to Duchamp. Mm-hmm. Rob Lawrence, with the aid of two digital media agencies, Syzygy and Unique, <laughs> created Human Tide, a large-scale collaborative reimagining of three standard stoppages. And it's super complex and beautiful. We will have a Ooh. link to the video on our sources, and you all need to watch it. I really, really love this work. And yeah, it happened in 2013. And... 
on YouTube, it's only got like 6,000 views and it deserves many more views than that. I think it's something. <laughs> yeah. Let's get up those views. Hey, Someone guys. go watch it 6,000 more times. <laughs> I just feel like it's one of those things. The people who planned it put so much thought and work into it and it's yeah. beautiful and no one really knows about it. And yeah. So go watch it. But it was created for the I Am Not Dead Festival in Hearn Bay in southeast England. The location where Duchamp created the idea for three standard stoppages in the summer of 1913. Hmm. So he was in Hearn Bay. He was doing these experiments. Whoa. That's where they did this homage. Gotcha. The idea for the project came from one of Duchamp's sketches. While three standard stoppages attempts to capture ideas of chance in the physical form of three one-meter-long threads, human-tide attempted to capture chance in the form of three one-kilometer-long walks of light on film. Now, that probably sounds really, like, abstract. Um. It does. <laughs> and I remember you showing this in seminar, yeah. and it is so amazing. It's you guys really have to cool. see it. And I don't really know how to explain it better than that. So it's a film... That is obviously aesthetically worlds different than three standard stoppages. Right. But it was created by people with these very long light sticks at sunset walking along this bay. And Mm -hmm. there's three different lines and they happen at different times and at different speeds. And they cross over each other and then they added music to the background. Just this really abstract John Cagey type music. Gotcha. Only more ethereal. It's just really beautiful, you guys. (laughs) You got to go watch it. But yeah, so the result was four 100 second long films representing each of the three stoppages on their own and all three stoppages collected together and then kind of overlaid. So they're trying to map the shape of the tide over the course of a sunset. Yeah. So yeah, once again, another artwork, another very large scale artwork that was influenced by Duchamp there has been so much work created in the past century influenced by him that you probably don't even realize is influenced by him for real we talked about this a little bit on the a piece of work episode mm-hmm. two I think he in so many ways is one of the papas of modernism some of his ideas permeate through all of modern art and we don't know him the way we know like picasso Mm -hmm. and conceptually duchamp asked a lot more questions than picasso in my opinion i think that you're right about that and i think that he did it and not to bash on my boy picasso but i think that there was a little bit less of an ego behind Mm -hmm. some of i feel like when i see duchamp's work i feel like he has this almost childlike wonder of the world. Yeah. Like he's so curious about everything. He wants to know about astronomy. He wants to chart geography, time, and mm-hmm. space. He loved this notion of leaving things up to chance and returning very briefly to the large glass. In moving the large glass at one point, it was shattered not yeah. it didn't right. it didn't completely break but it caused these big mm-hmm. cracks in the glass and i forget where this happened but they were shitting themselves basically <laughs> like this is the worst thing that could have happened and when he saw it 
he loved it. Yeah. He just thought, that's so like, great. that's great. It, it's so much better now. Yeah. And I am just like, I love this guy. He's For so real. great. So that's pretty much all I got to say about that. That's all um, I got to say. That's all I got to say it. about that. Check out Three Standard Stoppages and Human Tide, both dope. Were you going to talk about fluxusy things or? So on that same vein that Duchamp has influenced so much of what we consider to be modern art, briefly just returning to our babe Yoko Ono, part of what I discussed in my seminar paper, I know we're just talking about our papers, but we're proud of these papers, okay? Like we worked really hard on them, so a lot should we put our papers as sources can we do that i don't know i'm almost <laughs> like sources i, I mean like you guys can you i think we, well, we but... could but i don't know i don't know <laughs> so this whole notion of becoming and this infra thin concept where the creative aspect takes place i feel was a central tenet to a lot of what the flexus performance artists were doing definitely and I can only think of Yoko Ono cut piece and in many ways the same concepts that Duchamp was drawing upon in works like The Bride or Passage from Virgin to Bride. I feel like these concepts are also being questioned and put in the audience's face in the same way with Yoko Ono's cut piece. This idea that the creative aspect of the work is in the action of removing parts of her clothing so ultimately the work is the passage of her going from clothed to basically nude so there's this sort of voyeurism that Duchamp is interested in that also comes into play with works like Cut Piece. In many ways, I think that the Fluxus movement was a little bit of an extension of some of what Dada was all about. Mm -hmm. Definitely, definitely influenced by it. And interestingly, too, if you just want to trace the history of art and, like I said, trace these modern ideas back to Duchamp, Duchamp influencing Yoko Ono's cut piece, Yoko Ono's cut piece influenced Marina Abramovich, Mm -hmm. Marina Abramovich influenced Shia LaBeouf. Oh, man. (laughs) I want to know what he's doing right now. I have feelings on the works of Shia LaBeouf and we should probably talk about them at a later date. We should contact his people. Have our people talk to his people. Our people, aka us. (laughs) We are our people. (laughs) Talk to We don't have other people. (laughs) Oh my god. Watch us have Shia LaBeouf on an episode. Oh, and hopefully does some just weird shit. That would be great. Just screams at us. (laughs) (laughs) Come on! Do it! (laughs) That would be amazing. I want to just say that without Duchamp, there would be no Shia LaBeouf do it. I'm just going to put I, that I think, out there. I think that's you know? fair. I think yeah. that's fair. Yeah. So Duchamp is where it all started. Yeah. Dude. The original Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> oh, wow. That is a lot. That is. <laughs> oh, man. Contour from Cox has all your favorites all in one place. And with the Contour remote, you can use your voice to find them on live TV, on demand, 
and streaming apps like Netflix, Prime Video, and more. See Cox.com for details. Before we throw it over to Ginny, did you have anything else you wanted to throw in there? No, no, because I feel that I could go on for a long time about Fluxus and then we're just gonna get all Lost over the, the place. place. Save um, it for the Fluxus episode. Yeah, and well, we talk about Fluxus a decent amount in our Yoko Ono episode. So if you are listening and you're like, what the heck is Fluxus? Go listen to our Yoko Ono episode because that is a jewel of an episode. <laughs> that was a good one. I really enjoy that one very much. A jewel. All right, so Ginny's gonna kind of jump to a to a lady that yeah a fairly unknown lady really unknown have you guys heard of baroness elsa i've heard the name Mm -hmm. and i knew like i read through this and i was like oh i think i've kind of heard of some of these things but i was very surprised by a lot yeah and i mean it's it's a good kind of transition from talking about artists that duchamp really inspired because baroness elsa was very inspired by duchamp but also in turn inspired him in many ways because they were contemporaries so her full name is Baroness Elsa von Freytag Loringhoven. Whoa. Um, she was a German-born artist who was known as the first American Dada. Also, she's been dubbed as the mother of Dada. And she came to New York City and primarily worked out of New York, hence, you know, this American Dada title. So she used her body for work in a lot of ways. She would dress herself elaborately. She shaved and decorated her head, which we know Dada's also did. She sculpted and painted as well. And her body of work is extensive. And I really recommend checking her out on her own. She's a really fascinating and eccentric woman. In talking about how Baroness Elsa and Duchamp came together, they met in New York in the early 1900s when European artists were pouring into the States, specifically New York City. And so she was a very intriguing figure. She got arrested multiple times for walking outside naked and because of her outfits, she was just very out there, very sexually progressive and aggressive, especially for the times. And she was quite taken with Duchamp's lithe French body and <laughs> nice bone structure. Wow. But he oh, continued he was a very to, handsome man. He was. He was. He, he was. continued to deny her advances, but they did remain friends and Dang. drew a lot of inspiration from one another. So the Baroness labeled Duchamp her platonic lover. Oh, I like that. I yeah. like that. I like that. <laughs> I've got a few it's like of Like she gave it her best shot. And like, <laughs> she okay. really tried. <laughs> it's like, all right. Yep. Do we have a picture? I'm gonna. I'm. I need a picture of this babe. I don't have one up of her, but if you just look, we can put one up for the episode. But if you just look up Baroness Elsa, she was really something. So she did Whoa. several things in terms of performance art that were related to Duchamp. One of my favorites is a friend had given her a newspaper clipping of nude descending a staircase. And once she received this, she stripped down naked and in front of a small audience of people, rubbed it all over her naked body, reciting at the end a poem, Marcel, Marcel, I love you like hell, Marcel. (laughs) Wow. And so this kinetic (laughs) performance demonstrated here was a spark to what's been called performative data influencing the movement at large from this instance. 
And their work intersected in many ways over the years. She wrote poems about his work, including his painting on glass, which Jen just talked about, the large glass. And she also made portraits of Duchamp. So she really greatly admired him as a person as well as an artist. And the two often chatted about their work together and were very open about their work in that way. So she had long practiced taking found objects and rendering them new or unfamiliar by removing the previous context of whatever found objects she had uncovered. This was done in many ways through placement and positioning. So like you have an object that serves one specific purpose and you rotate it or turn it and then it's something new. And so specifically she collected found objects from the gutters and objects relating to waste. So Dadaists, in their response to society's imposed norms, acted out against them, focusing on what society would often label like uncivilized or foul. And particularly, I read a really interesting book about Baroness Elsa. It'll be posted on our website, but it's by an author named Irene Gamel. And she makes the point that since toilet training functions as one of the earliest ways of social regulation and social order, Dada's disruption of that social order is perhaps appropriately located in the realm of toilet matter, obscenity, and waste. So the Baroness created a sculpture of an altered bit of plumbing cheekily titled God in 1917. (laughs) Her focus was on human waste and the phallus exhibited all with humor. Duchamp's fountain, the infamous and famous piece we discussed earlier, is in many ways related to the piece God. I mean, they sound similar, right? They seem to be dealing with very similar Similar issues. Yeah, (laughs) certainly. So here's where it gets interesting, and these are arguments that are posed by Irene Gamble in this book about Baroness Elsa. So our mutt can be mutter or mutter, which means mother in German. Our mutt also suggests armut in German for poverty, German being the native language of the Baroness. Duchamp wrote in a letter to his sister, quote, one of my female friends who had adopted the pseudonym Richard Mutt sent me a porcelain urinal as a sculpture. Since there was nothing indecent about it, there was no reason to reject it. Could this female friend have been the Baroness? Oh. Author Irene Gamble makes a convincing argument that yes, it very well could have been. I've heard of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are several other theories linking the Baroness to the creation and provenance of the fountain. The author Irene Gamble admits that while concluding evidence is missing to say definitively yes or no, that if there was, as Duchamp himself stated, a female friend who was involved in kind of the idea for Fountain, it most very likely was the Baroness. Baroness Elsa herself never shed light on the issue. She never had any problems with the Fountain. She never said, hey, that's mine, blah, 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 which kind of makes it that much more of a mystery. But she did continue to proclaim an artistic bond with Duchamp while also being critical of certain aspects of his work, not in a mean way, but just a kind of art critical way. What we can say definitively is that the Baroness and Duchamp were artistically linked and both contributed to American Dada, though one obviously has received significantly more attention. Food why, for thought. I wonder why that is. <laughs> I wonder if there is some large Food for thought. social construct that the could... Patriarchy? <laughs> Does it start with a P? 
Is that and the, in with a Y? Is that the, the good old patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> I think it is. I think it is. Talking about his, you know, connection with artistic ladies. It reminded me of, he also did a film with experimental filmmaker Maya Darren. Mm. Oh, yeah. Called The Witch's Cradle, which is fun. And it involves string. <laughs> and you should watch it. It's on YouTube. We'll put a link up. But Maya Darren is someone we should also do a full episode Definitely. on. Her shit is so cool. Like, she was an experimental filmmaker in, like, the 20s, 30s, 40s, maybe. And she's famous for the film Meshes of the Afternoon, which is also on YouTube and is really good. And is just, like, this cool experimental film so if you're into film and you are unfamiliar with her you definitely need to check her out as well but yeah the film with Duchamp is really it's fun it's very Duchampian I think it's a very clear mix of their two styles I think Mm -hmm. it's a really good collaboration yeah Um, I also I I, want to just briefly mention that we keep using this word Duchampian mm -hmm. and we did not make that word up yeah that's that's real that's (laughs) a real word in art historical terminology Mm -hmm. when you're talking about modern art most art history folk will know what you mean when you describe something as Duchampian folk will understand and hopefully now you will as well I hope that you will do we have anything else before listener mail? I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. Well, I have a listener mail from a while back, August, about our boxing episode. Remember that one, guys? That yes. was a really fun episode. That was fun. I like doing those weird thematic ones. Yeah. I think they, I mean, they jump all over the place, but in a good way. But if you haven't listened to that, we did an Art of Boxing episode a while back, so you should check it out. And we got this email from Chris, and he said, so I think, I think, I'm almost positive this podcast was created for me and me alone. I'm an art It was, Chris. You're right. You're on to us. (laughs) It's all for you, Chris. We've just been waiting for you, Chris. (laughs) We've been waiting for you, Chris. (laughs) I'm an art podcaster who boxed. And trained MMA in the late 1990s as things were just getting started. Dang. I never fought MMA. I know, right? I never fought MMA at all, but I knew a lot of the first wave of fighters and trainers. Also, I'm an art geek, do my own art podcast, and have worked in an art museum where a couple of Bellows paintings live. Mm. So yeah, this felt like one made for me. Yeah, it it does kind of sound like we... We were on the same wavelength as you yeah. with this one, Chris. An important name who sometimes gets mentioned along with the Ashcan School is a wrestler named William Muldoon. He was the greatest wrestler of his day and a trainer of wrestlers and boxers. He was also an accomplished actor, getting better than decent reviews for his turns on the stage, even in complex Shakespearean roles. Whoa. He was friendly with many in the arts community and sat for several painters. The physique of the white boxer in both members of this club is remarkably similar to Muldoon, known as the Solid Man. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) He was also likely the basis for one of the figures in The Wrestlers at the MFA in Boston. My personal interest in MMA and boxing goes way back, but my main love is pro wrestling. My lifetime (laughs) project. Oh, man. My lifetime project is called A Survey of Pro Wrestling Objects in American Museums. And I've started, but it's much bigger than I thought. 
includes places you'd expect to find wrestling objects like the Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame and the Museum of the Moving Image in places that were surprised, such as the hundreds of photos at MoMA and History San Jose, dozens of wrestling programs and photos at the Andy Warhol Museum and paintings of wrestlers done by Mel Ramos. As to your question about whether or not fighters see it as performance, kinda and sometimes. There are two main lines of fighters, grinders and showboats. Yeah, brother. Oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. I'm a grinder. <laughs> I'd probably be a showboat. <laughs> what are you, Corey? I honestly can't tell you. I yeah. it would depend on the day, You're I think. You're a grind boat. Mm. I'm a grind boat. Oh, <laughs> Sometimes I can be very theatrical and but other times, especially if I'm in survival mode, yeah. I think i'd be a little bit more of a grinder so yeah i'm, a, I'm a grind boat um that's awesome sh- showboats and the best example is mcgregor dude oh my god maybe i wouldn't be a show i don't know anyway Jenny's <laughs> like forget it you would be like a cute showboat you would be not like a mcgregor showboat yeah <sighs> and also the things that people love about mcgregor are like his insane confidence. he's very over the top exactly yes. that's why people like him i just still got his ass kicked. i just can't stand him <laughs> Uh, what was he's losing his legs like he's like losing his legs like mcgregor (laughs) (laughs) oh the greatest video of all time i know that video the bat video what was the name of it uh if you type in like bat dad it'll probably come up but it's a bat trapped in a irish family's kitchen bat dad (laughs) it's the best thing you'll ever fucking watch it's really funny Showboats, and the best example is McGregor, are all about putting on a good show, and they tend to be exceptionally good fighters who end up holding back in the cage to be more entertaining. Mm, And grinders just go out there to get a win. Yeah, I think maybe I would be more of a grinder because I'm super competitive. Uh, so I think that's this is true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Corey out here grinding. <laughs> a lot of guys will be grinders in the ring and showboats outside, seeing the build up to matches as a form of performance. That makes sense. Sure. Many will point to Muhammad Ali for that. Mm, yes. Great I can see that. episode. Thanks, Chris. That was a really interesting email. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, yeah Chris, that was, that was very informative. Dope. And um, Thank you, Chris. I'm glad that you enjoyed the episode. We really enjoyed recording it. Yeah, we it did. I think that we should do some more thematic works like that in the future because they're fun, they're interesting, and we end up learning about all of the stuff. Exactly. Like especially with that one, like we were all out of our lane. Like oh, yes. none of us know Completely. anything about boxing. Yeah. Like, it was just a fun idea we had and we connected it to something we know right. a lot about. Yeah. So we would like to do more stuff like that. So I mean if you have a good idea for another episode like that, email us at arthistorybabes at gmail.com. You can find us on all the social medias. Reminder we got merch. We got merch. Merch. Arthistorybabes.com slash merchandise please go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash arthistorybabes and donate. You also get access to exclusive bonus episodes that we post on our Patreon and they're really fun. They're the same regular format. Mm-hmm. We swear and everything in them, but um, but they're, they're fun and they're 
more specific topics, like just interesting contemporary topics. So being a patron is very beneficial to you. If you become a patron at the $15 level or the $50 level, you also get a t-shirt. Nice. So there's that. Lots of benefits for you. Also, when you sign up on Patreon, you get to watch our super funny thank you video. (laughs) It's so good. It's pretty good. It's probably my favorite thing we've ever done. You should probably sign up just for that video. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, head over to our Patreon. Please help support us. We really, really appreciate it and we appreciate you. You can also write us reviews on iTunes. Share us with your friends and family. Is there anything else I can do? Anything? <laughs> just, you know, just, just just keep being just you. Just keep being you. We love you guys. Um, really, we, we do. We have the best fans. We like, can't do this ridiculous. without you. And honestly, I, I think we've said this before, but I really do get emotional when I read these very nice um, listener emails. Mm-hmm. If I'm ever feeling down about myself, I just go on there and I'm like, man everyone loves us <laughs> and um it's a really good feeling so keep the listener email coming uh we love it we might just read yours thank you for being you yeah and thanks and thanks for being involved in and everything we just had our halloween costume contest recently yes, that was amazing it was amazing we got so many great submissions you guys we were like holy shit this is crazy you guys are awesome you guys are just really awesome and you really y- y'all like did it up yeah too. you brought it it was a hard decision. Yeah. There were so many good ones, so many creative ones. So thank you for everyone who participated. We'll definitely do more contests like that in the future. So thanks, you guys. You're really the best. And we will see you soon. Have see a good soon. time. From Marcel, Marcel, I love you like hell, Marcel. The Art History Babes podcast is made possible by support from our lovely listeners via Patreon. Head over to patreon.com slash arthistorybabes to help keep the Art History Babes going and for access to bonus content. Geico presents, oh, not again, another voicemail from your roommate. Hey, man, so I was in a rush to get to work and I left the back door open. Could you shut it? I left it wide open. Uh, while you're there, could you also turn off the oven and all of the burners? <laughs> My mom never let me use the oven. I wonder why. <laughs> the Geico Insurance Agency could help keep your personal property protected, like if it's your roommate's first time operating an oven. Visit Geico.com to see how easy it is to switch and save on renter's insurance.